This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Do you know someone in your office or in your neighborhood that just seems to be happy all the time? No matter what bad stuff may happen around you, they're always happy. Well, studies done here at the Wharton School suggest that these people end up at times being perceived by many people as either naive, someone that could be exploited in a conflict, or they're people that try and stay away from negative information. Maurice Schweitzer is Professor of Operations, Information, and Decisions here at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the author of the book Friend and Foe with Adam Galinsky, and he is uh, one of the people at the head of this uh, reporting. We welcome into the studio. Great to see you. Oh, thanks for having me back. Thank you. Happy New Year to you. So what was it that, that really got you started looking at this in the first place? Well, one idea is that uh, we, we look around, and, and happiness is something that we tend to think is always good. Yeah. So there's a positive psychology field that we should be positive, upbeat. We should strive for happiness. The pursuit of happiness is deeply embedded in our sort of national thinking. And, and yet, sometimes uh, people who are very happy are exactly the kinds of people who are exploited. And that's what we document in our research, where we look at people who are very happy, and if they seem more happy than baseline happiness, mm -hmm. so people who are very happy, always chipper, always upbeat, they strike us as naive. Mm -hmm. And we found that, we documented that, that link consistently. So one of the most robust findings in our research is that we see very happy people as naive hmm. and in our last couple of studies, we found that people are more likely to exploit those people. Well, I, I would think that that may very well be the case, unfortunately, because there are, you know, people out there that will look to kind of cut the corner. They'll look to take advantage of a situation when they can. And I guess to a degree, is it that these people end up seeing characteristics of this happiness that they that they feel is over and aboard the norm, and they figure, wow, I, I know that from past history, this could be somebody that, that I may be able to take advantage of. Well, it's as if we're making this reverse inference. So we know the expression that ignorance is bliss. Right. Uh, and we think, okay, people that are shielding them, themselves from all this negative information out there, those are the people that might be truly and deeply happy. But we seem to sort of flip that, and this reverse inference is that we see people who are very happy, and we assume they must be ignorant. So, so we assume that they're not looking f deeply into the national headlines. They're not looking deeply at the world around them, and and we sort of we sort of assume that if they're happy, it's because they're not thinking carefully, or or investigating things around them. So do those people, do, I mean, you hate to say it because you just said being happy a lot of the time isn't, shouldn't be a negative, uh, but do they almost have to have maybe a little level of cynicism or, or angst in their life to kind of balance things out? Yeah, it's almost as if we're, we're looking around and, and we do look for people who are happy. Right. 
and the sort of the norm, the baseline is some happiness. But when people go above that, like I am super, I am great, everything's wonderful. Yeah. And and we documented this with a lot of different examples with with texts. So like when people are writing this, when they're expressing it on their faces, when people look very happy, the reaction they get is totally different from just sort of regular happiness or the sort of the normal up and down that we'd have during the day. The very and consistently happy people are just perceived to be naive. Like they're mm. just not paying attention. Well, I, I, I can honestly say that I've I've kind of seen that situation happen with me a little bit at times. Not that I'm the happy guy all the time, but it's almost like it's the old line. Hey, listen, will you dial it down a little bit, right? And and, and it's almost like it's it's an annoyance to other people out there. Well, it's, it's interesting. We looked at, at at how annoying people found it, and we were expecting to find that people found it more annoying than they did. Mm-hmm. So so in terms of you know how much do you like this person? Yeah, we found you know some mixed evidence, but people don't don't automatically or axiomatically hate that really happy person. Though you can imagine that person being annoying. Right. But but what we really consistently found was that we have these beliefs that hey, somebody who's that happy must not be paying close attention, and and that we found very consistently. And then when you give somebody an opportunity to sort of you know. If you're going to pull one over on someone, yeah. or you want uh, an easy negotiation partner, or you want someone that you might exploit, it's that super happy person that's the target. That's that's the person you're looking to exploit. That's the person who gets bad information. Well, does it also play in uh, to uh, like a situation when you're in the office and it's the old good cop bad cop, where you know you have somebody that you know, is obviously more of the positive, trying to push forward one agenda, where you have somebody that may be a little bit more rough around the edges, but may be able to get the dirty work done, you know, when they're in the office. Well, there's definitely, I mean, that, that the contrast is interesting. And what's interesting about the contrast effect is that you might have that bad cop that, that makes even the moderately happy person seem extremely happy and very reasonable. Right. So, so that so the contrast can be a very useful tool. And you know, and, and the reality is the, the the studies that we did were mostly in North America. Here, mm-hmm. uh, we have very small samples from uh, from abroad. But I think I think it's worth being cautious about how we extend this because in the United States, people are pretty happy. Mm-hmm. I think if we were to go abroad, say to Germany or sort of Northern Europe countries, um, I think we might find even more extreme results because people who are very happy. Seem might, might seem particularly naive in those contexts, and, and maybe just you know American level happiness mm-hmm. might seem might strike others as very naive. Well, I- explain the part of this about about these are also people that tend to shelter themselves from some of this negative information. I, I mean, they they doing it just because they they want to build that little kind of wall around their world of happiness. Yeah, so that's the. That's the mechanism that we found. That is, when you see somebody who's very happy, right. you assume that they're not paying close attention. They're not, they're not going out and finding out negative information around them. They're not listening to your show. They're not reading the newspaper. Yeah. Uh, so, so we assume that they're sheltering themselves from negative information. That's the assumption. And 
as a result, we assume that they're naive and subject to exploitation. So, so what's interesting is that when we showed people really happy people and we told them that they actually do go out and search information, they are consumers of the news mm-hmm. and world around them, the, that it muted that effect. So that is, mm. it, it really is like, like this is what people are believing. They believe that the very happy person's just not paying close attention to the world around them. Yeah. And if you signal that, yeah, I am extremely happy, I'm also aware of everything that's happening around me, then the effect goes away. That is, people assume, oh, well, if you really are paying close attention and you're really not naive, you can be both very happy and wise about the world around you, but you've got to demonstrate, you've got to, my, my sort of natural knee-jerk assumption is that you're not paying attention. Right. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say, is that the perception right off the bat is, is to not kind of link those two. Correct. And, and so I, I would imagine that that, that, some of this data really has to be interesting from the business perspective uh, of corporate structure and, and and you know people that you want to have in and around your company and, and it probably can have an economic impact on on the the success of a business. Yeah, part of the way I think about it is that you know, there's some people that are very upbeat, very happy that that you know believe that happiness is going to be motivating and it's going to be inspiring and it's going to be attractive. And some of that is true, mm-hmm. but that as as leaders, we need to also be quite mindful of the fact that when we exude a great deal of happiness, we may also need to address concerns about how wise we are about the world. So this obviously will, will have an effect, and it really does play out for the managers of a company or right. moving up the ladder to the to the C-suite who may see that from the mid-level, mid-level executive as well. I think that's, that's exactly right. I mean, so you can think about uh, managers as they get promoted and sort of evaluated, you know, how how wise or how naive are they? Um, and also as we think about Salesforce. So we, so we often prescribe to people that, you know, you have to be happy. You have to demonstrate this happiness. Mm-hmm. And we might be signaling something about our company or about our employees that they're not the smartest, they're not the wisest people out there if they're constantly happy all the time. Does it signal anything about our culture as it as it is right now, you know, in this country? Uh, I mean, you know, the data that you collected came from when, the you know, the last, yeah, last few years. Yeah. So, I mean, we're coming uh, here in the United States, obviously, our country go back a decade, it was not a happy time for a lot of people because of the recession and all the lost money. And and so, you know, to a degree, you know, there, there could be a little bit of a build back going here. Well, what I would say is that there are always things in the news, even when our economy is going well, that that might bring us down. Right. And yet Americans on a, as, as a whole are relatively optimistic. And as I mentioned before, this, this idea of the pursuit of happiness is deeply embedded in our thinking that... Americans tend to be upbeat, optimistic, and happy. And that baseline is is what we're sort of comparing our results to. That is sort of regular, ordinary happiness is mm-hmm. fine. And in fact, that's that's what's expected. And when you're sort of neutral, when you see somebody who just has neutral affect, they look down and depressed. Right. And what's interesting is that people who are very happy – and I think some of this positive psychology sort of, you know, works sort of can drive people to be like, I am great. Yeah. Everything is great. I'm wonderful. 
that kind of happiness is what could be sort of grating to some people. Yeah. But we found very broadly that it, it signals this this idea that I'm shielding myself from negative information, that I'm not very sophisticated. We're joined by Marie Schweitzer, uh, professor of operations, information, and decisions here at the Wharton School. We're talking about his uh, study uh, that uh, he was uh, putting together uh, that basically the, the interesting tagline at the top is, Bliss is ignorance, which uh, is obviously the, the the kind of the reverse of uh, of what that line has been in history. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I, I, I guess then the people that end up being these happy people... Uh, are they to a degree, maybe they don't even realize it, but from the research that you did, are they at, at, at a level of disadvantage? Yeah, right absolutely. Now? Absolutely. So, so what we found is that the people who, who exude this sort of great happiness, uh, they, they may sort of, you know, be high, high, highly motivated. They may be very happy themselves. And successful to a degree, right? And they may be successful, but they're also more likely to be targets of exploitation. So, so other people sort of scanning the environment will look at these people, and what we found in our studies, if they have a conflict of interest, they're more likely to exploit this very happy person. Right. If they're looking for a negotiation partner that they might deceive, they want the very happy person. That is, this, they see this very happy person as more gullible, right. and, and they actually act on it, and they actually give that person worse information. Does it end up being when somebody does act on this and they take advantage of it, that the person that is happy realizes it in the end and there ends up being more conflict because of it? Well, that's a great question. So in our studies, we really just looked at the, like the first pathway. That is, how are these people being perceived right. and what happens to them? Right. What, what we haven't done uh, is look very systematically at how these people actually operate and react. Uh, so, so, so what, what I know with confidence is that we judge very happy people as naive, as if they're not scanning their their environment. Uh, my sense is that may or may not actually be true, right? But that the very happy person's more likely to be exploited. What we haven't looked at is sort of these downstream consequences of, yeah, does this create conflict? Does this actually end up, you know, sort of damping the very happy people sort of down when they figure out, hey, you know what? Very, you know, being very happy has some downsides that I want to sort of ease off. Do the people that are that, that are happy, do they, are they able to, it sounds like they're not, able to recognize when this potential trouble is coming their way? Uh, I mean, they're not able to kind of get a, get a guide on this is coming at me, I need to be aware of this. It just kind of almost goes right over the top of them. Yeah, what we found is, I mean, this was surprising. That is, we didn't anticipate this effect being so robust. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, we don't have any any evidence that, that people anticipate this, that, that people, you know, sort of understand that here's a cost to being very happy. And and so the broader literature hasn't, hasn't identified many disadvantages to being very happy. I mean, in general, happiness is good. In fact, happiness is often the goal. But expressing very high levels of happiness can have some downsides. And I think that's 
That's really important to note. Is was a lot of the research that you did with looking at people that are in a in a significantly large corporate environment to begin with, and and obviously that you know being a potential factor of this happening as well compared to you know say being in a in a smaller business setting where there is a more at times familial relationship with the people that that you work with in your office. Yeah, so I think I think you're raising something really important that that the the assumptions we make about other people based upon the emotions they're expressing, that's going to be particularly important for people you don't know well. So right. the first impressions that you make or people that you interact with just casually sort of in an organization, those could still be important relationships, but but they're very different from the more intimate sort of deeper ties that we have with people we see all the time. And there, and there the inferences we're going to make are not going to be based on as many superficial cues as they are how how well we actually know someone. So, so you know, you see your sibling or you see a parent, and they're extremely happy, but you still have an enormous amount of experience to to draw on that's going to inform what you really think that they're doing. Yeah. And so what we found is that, yeah, once you know somebody, um, that that overwhelms the the you know, the quick inferences you're making based upon how they look. I, I would think, and, and again, maybe this is something you haven't tackled yet, but it, again, it could be a, a downstream consequence uh, of the fact that, you know, we see more companies these days that are always looking to have the team, team building exercises, you know, building smaller units within the corporation to be able to build the overall bottom line of the company. And if you have these people and you have this level of of action going on, I would think to a degree it, it could have an impact on all of these team building ideas, philosophies that a lot of C-suites are looking for right now. Yeah. In fact, there are, there are huge advantages once you have uh... – Small teams. So if you can build small teams, you're likely to deepen trust. You're going to have better collaboration, and you're going to be inoculated to to some of the sort of the, the sort of vagaries of things just like this. That is the sort of quick inferences we're going to make based upon how somebody's expressing their feelings. Right. Uh, and 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 you're going to have a much more robust system, so that when bumps come along and somebody gets promoted and somebody else doesn't get promoted, when you have an unequal distribution of the workload, what you're going to find is that in smaller teams that have deep ties and deep trust, they're going to be able to weather these storms better mm-hmm. than than people that have much looser ties and, and know each other less well. But we're, we're in general, I, I think it feels like we're more, when we're in the office place and or we're at a party with friends, we're more adaptable to be able to make changes, you know, as things occur. So for the people that are happy, you know, if you are taken advantage of, you know, once or twice or whatever it may be, you will end up being more adaptable. It may take away a little bit of that happiness. Do you see that, you know, some of that happiness takes is taken away from people over a period of time? Yeah, I mean, be, being happy makes us more robust. That is, that is we can... Uh, we can actually weather some adverse events, bad news, bad outcomes. Yeah. Uh, and being happy is very functional. What I'm suggesting is that uh, it's it's the sort of the degree matters. Right. So some happiness is very good. 
Uh, extreme happiness has some downsides, yeah. uh, and and some of the way people perceive us. So, so, so the the magnitude matters here, and that's another key idea in our work. That is, a lot of scholars have been relatively insensitive to the magnitude of different emotions, hmm. and and I think you know we sort of intuitively know that yeah, ecstasy is different from you know bliss, different from happiness. But we haven't carefully looked at that, right? Um, and you know, here's in our research, we were able to very carefully measure different levels of happiness, and we find that there's a curvilinear relationship here. That is, I, uh, it's not great to be sort of a, a downer and, and sort of very very depressive. Yeah, it's very good to be happy, um, but then when you you can be in fact too happy. Yeah, um, and that. And there's sort of negative repercussions for that. The two extremes have have that negative have that negative impact compared to somebody the people that are more in the middle of this process. Yeah, exactly. Whereas you know we, we think we always want to be just happier. I mean, like who would who would want to be happier? Uh, right, exactly. Uh, I, I don't go into any day saying, "Man, I want to be a real curmudgeon today." Yeah, it's like, oh, I woke up a little too happy. I'll sort of dial that's it down. Right, that's right. Yes. Um, but, but, but what's <laughs> funny is that there's sort of many cases where where we do want to dial down happiness and we don't think about it and you know you're not going to go into therapy and say oh you know i'm really sort of too upbeat you know can you help me out (laughs) yes take Uh, me down a few notches but there's some cases where for example delivering bad news uh or in a negotiation somebody makes you an offer uh you don't want to be too happy in your reaction to that yeah right that there's sort of cases where where expressing less happiness can actually be be beneficial yeah um and, and I think it's you know it's worth understanding that some of us with high emotional intelligence will be more adaptable and sort of get it and send off the right signals in, in ways that some others of us might be, you know, just wearing our heart on our sleeves. Here's how I am. Here's how I feel. Yeah. And and the outcomes we get, the way we're treated by other people, may not be as good. How do you follow this uh, this research up? What's the next link in the chain? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I'm actually doing a few related things. Um, one project I have uh, is on humor. Uh, so I've been looking at, huh. at, at humor in the workplace. Right. Um, we found some really interesting results about how people perceive people who tell jokes in the workplace. Right. Uh, and there's some very positive effects when those jokes go well. And, <laughs> and, and yet you can sort of easily imagine oh, yeah. ways for jokes to go badly. So so, so I've been particularly interested in uh, humor. Well, we'll get you back on that here in the near future. Great to see you again. Thank you. Thank you. Marie Schweitzer from the Wharton School. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.